Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, the president of Bob Jones University resigns in what some media reports have called a coup by the hardline fundamentalist board members at that school. We also look at the remarkable growth of the Relief and Development Ministry, Convoy of Hope. And we take a look at why so many ministry leaders are resigning lately. Is this part of a trend? And if so, why? We begin today with a major lawsuit against the United Methodist Church. More than 180 churches have joined together to sue the North Georgia Conference and its leaders. Uh, they want to leave the United Methodist Church with their property. The lawsuit was filed by 186 churches, to be precise, on March the 30th in Cobb County Superior Court in Marietta, Georgia, and it involves more than a quarter of the North Georgia Conference's nearly 700 congregations. It's the most congregations that have banded together in a single lawsuit since the denomination began undergoing a slow-motion separation several years ago. The lawsuit responds to the North Georgia Conference leadership's decision late last year to suspend the disaffiliation process under church law. With that decision, the lawsuit says, conference leaders acted wrongfully in bad faith and beyond the limits of their power to deprive these churches the right to vote on withdrawal from the United Methodist Church with their property intact. The churches want the conference to restore its disaffiliation process as well as punitive damages. The underlying issue is what is known as the trust clause within the United Methodist Church. Now, the trust clause says that church property is held in trust for the entire denomination, and that's been a part of uh, Methodist church law for a long time. In fact, Methodism's founder, John Wesley, in introduced the first trust clause, uh, which is been a part of the United Methodist Church or its predecessor organization since the 18th century, the late 1700s. But in 2019, the trust clause was temporarily suspended so that this disaffiliation process could begin for churches. Now, there were certain conditions to be met, and these churches that are suing say that they are in the process of meeting these conditions. And the clock is ticking on the suspension of this trust clause rule. So when the North Georgia Conference hit the pause button last year, it stopped churches from going through this disaffiliation process. Many people think that the North Georgia Conference is just trying to run out the clock so that when that trust clause gets re-implemented, uh, then these churches will not have had time to go through the process. And that's why these churches are filing the lawsuit. Already, U.S. annual conferences have approved the withdrawal of more than 2,000 congregations since the church law took effect four years ago. That total represents only about 7% of U.S. United Methodist churches, but thousands more are in the pipeline. Now, representing these 186 churches in their lawsuit is Dan Parr, who is the 
uh, North Georgia Wesleyan Covenant Association chapter president, and David Gibbs, who is the president of the National Center for Life and Liberty. Now, Gibbs said this. He said, our goal is simple. We request that the North Georgia bishop, trustees, and cabinet restore processes that were in place last year, which did allow 70 churches in the North Georgia Annual Conference to disaffiliate. He went on to say this, the churches attempted to address their differences in a respectful, Christ-centered way by going to the table together for amicable solutions. The conference, though, has not respected the churches and responded timely to their request. Our next story involves one of the largest Christian ministries in the country. That ministry is called Convoy of Hope. It's a faith-based humanitarian organization that's distributed more than $2 billion in aid since its founding in 1994, and it's on a roll. It's nearly tripled in size just since 2018. The ministry's annual revenue has grown from about $180 million in 18 to more than $500 million in 2022. The bulk of that income came from in-kind gifts of food, which uh, grew from $129 million to $377 million during that time period. Convoy of Hope also distributes goods through its own work and in 2021 delivered loads of food to more than 150 other ministry partners. But cash contributions grew dramatically as well. They did. A cash contributions rose from about $50 million to $138 million, again, nearly a tripling during that five-year period. The growth has allowed Convoy of Hope to increase its program and expand its international reach. It's now in 125 countries, and it provides food for children, disaster relief. It promotes women's empowerment and organizes rural initiatives and agricultural projects. Convoy of Hope's growth has now put it in the same league as Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, and World Vision in terms of size. Convoy of Hope receives high grades from Ministry Watch and Charity Navigator for its efficiency and transparency. It does. We do, in fact, give them a pretty high mark. Uh, its website, though, claims that it spent 92.3% of its income on programs in 2020. Our analysis differs from that a good bit, saying that they spent only about 86%. Now, Convoy, Ministry Watch did reach out to Convoy of Hope to try to get some answers to some questions about executive salary, its rapid growth, and potential leadership conflicts of interest. Uh, we reached out by phone and email to Ethan Foritz, who is the ministry's vice president of public engagement. But so far, we've received no response. What kind of questions would you have asked? Well, Convoy of Hope receives large donations of food and supplies that it ships out to food banks and other ministries, some of them very small. In 2021, for example, it gave $19 million in goods to an organization called Goodness Outreach Depot in Fort Worth, Texas, a ministry that had less than a half a million dollars in total income in 2019. And its largest grantee was an organization called Seek Ye the Way of the Cross. It's in Harlingen, Texas, Convoy of Hope gave them about $29 million in goods. 
So one of our questions would be simply, why is it acting as a middleman in these transactions? Are they claiming credit for the revenue and the ministry activity when in fact, others are doing the work. Now, there's nothing wrong with providing logistic support or providing uh, that uh, food and other material as a conduit. This, they can be powerful aids to the ministry of others, but what Convoy of Hope's role is in the disaster relief that it talks about in its fundraising efforts is not exactly clear. Are there any other concerns? Well, the executive offices of Convoy of Hope are something of a family affair uh, with family members of founder and President Hal Donaldson receiving in total more than $800,000 in income. Donaldson himself earns about $467,000, but his wife is also on the payroll. She's a vice president, earns $165,000 a year. One of their daughters earns $100,000, and another daughter earns about $80,000. Also, a board member's brother earns $165,000. Wives of two of the board members earn $50,000 and $55,000 respectively. The son of the chief operating officer earns about $46,000. So what's your bottom line with Convoy of Hope? Well, I've been following Convoy of Hope for years, Natasha, and many years ago, I was involved with Convoy of Hope in helping to organize an event here in Charlotte. I'm a fan of the ministry generally, but its size and continued growth has put it in the big leagues, as I mentioned earlier, uh, where there are greater expectations and greater scrutiny. Dealing with those expectations and that increased scrutiny will be among the new challenges that this ministry faces now that it has topped the half-billion-dollar mark in income. Orrin, let's look at one more story before our first break. It's the latest on controversial religious leader and businessman David Jang. Business ventures related to David Jang include Olivet University and the Christian Post, and they're under investigation by federal authorities. Uh, meanwhile, officials in California have filed a complaint about Olivet's lax educational standards and potential crimes in that state. Now, these developments were first reported by Newsweek magazine, which was once a part of Jang affiliated IBT media, but it is now suing IBT. Uh, Newsweek, which w once avoided covering Jang altogether, has now become one of the biggest sources of news reports on uh, the controversial Korean-American religious leader and his growing array of legal problems. Olivet, though, claims that the news outlet has weaponized its reporting because of that lawsuit. Let's focus on the California complaint. What's going on there and why is it significant? Well, California is the only state in the country to grant Olivet the right to confer degrees. And that right is important because Olivet offers degrees on 10 different U.S. campuses. But when state officials made an unannounced visit to Olivet's campus in Anza, California, last November, school administrators evaded the officials and were unable to provide accurate tallies of the students. So on March 17th, 
California's Attorney General charged Olivet with 14 violations of education regulations and issued a damning 31-page report on the school and threatened to revoke or suspend its approval to operate, which would affect all 10 of those campuses. Newsweek reported it this way. Olivet is accused of teaching substandard courses with unqualified teachers to a student body that matched neither academic records reported to regulators nor the university's own financial data. Uh, These charges have intensified other states' investigations of Olivet as well. And computers seized from the school by Homeland Security investigators are said to contain evidence chat logs between Olivet employees involved in money laundering. Again, that from the Newsweek reporting, but that happened back in 2020. Uh, Some of this uh, Homeland Security seizure took place then. Uh, Olivet pleaded guilty to money laundering charges that were brought by the Manhattan District Attorney. Homeland Security is also said to be investigating whether Olivet trafficked labor and broke visa laws to bring students from China. Homeland Security agents searched Olivet's ANSA campus in April of 2021 after a female student claimed that she was being held at the school against her will. She later escaped from the campus. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the president of Bob Jones University has resigned in what some are calling a coup. And the president of Bethlehem Seminary has also resigned over differences in theology and what they are calling a divergence of vision. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, we have the story of a leadership change at Minnesota's Bethlehem Seminary, founded by popular writer and pastor John Piper. Joe Rigney is a controversial Twin Cities seminary president with ties to influential author John Piper and Idaho pastor Doug Wilson, but he resigned on Monday due to what the school's board called, as you described, Natasha, a divergence of vision. Uh, Rigney said this in a resignation letter, I do not believe that I have the full confidence of the trustees, the elders of the governing churches, or the chancellor. The issues of divergence, according to the board, include Rigney's view on Christian nationalism. 
Rigney has been supportive of the ideology of Christian nationalism, which has gained currency among evangelical Christian leaders and some Republican politicians, particularly since the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The board also said Rigney's views on baptism put him at odds with the school's faith statement and with other leaders at Bethlehem. Rigney was named president of Bethlehem College and Seminary in September 2020, following the retirement of former president Tim Tomlinson. He had previously served as a professor at the school. In announcing Rigney's resignation, uh, John Piper and the chair of the school's uh, board of trustees expressed thankfulness for 16 years of service on the faculty and as president and said that they had, and I'm quoting here, high regard for his integrity and spiritual authenticity. However, Rigney is now, they said, out of step with several distinctives which Baptists have historically viewed as biblical. And that's not the only major resignation we saw this week. It's not a battle over who will control Bob Jones University, America's flagship fundamentalist school, also resulted in a resignation. Uh, that battle was won by board chairman John Lewis in a sustained power play that some alumni are calling a coup, as you mentioned in our setup for this story, Natasha. Uh, Steve Pettit is the school's president. He's been there since 2014 in that role, and he's the first Bob Jones University president from outside of the Jones family. Uh, he resigned just four months after his contract had been renewed for three years. Uh, Pettit wrote in a March 21st resignation letter that, uh, that the future of BJU requires the chairman and the president to work together. It is not happening now, and I can't see it happening in the future. Things are dysfunctional, and our working relationship is irreparably broken. The Collegian, the BJU student paper, reported that Pettit had the widespread support of the student body, and more than a 1,000 alumni showed up to show support for Pettit before the vote for his contract renewal last year. Pettit and members of a Facebook group called Positive BJU Grads and Friends, which now has more than 7,000 members, sought to force Lewis to resign, but Lewis in fact, prevailed, and it was Pettit who will now be gone. He leaves May the 5th. As Ministry Watch reported, both in November of last year and in February of this year, Lewis has led the resistance to Pettit, accusing him of being insufficiently fundamentalist because of the style of worship music that he allows at the student chapel services, performances in the fine arts program, and Pettit's participation in a bluegrass music band. Uh, also cited were changes in uniforms for female athletes. But Pettit also had a lot of success at the school. He did, but even some of those successes were used against him by the fundamentalist hardliners. For example, uh, Pettit drew condemnation for helping the school regain its federal tax-exempt status decades after the school's ban on interracial dating led to the loss of that status. 
Uh, the school was founded in 1927, by the way, admitted its first black students in 1971. Bob Jones University also earned accreditation from the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges under Pettit's leadership. This change makes BJU more attractive to prospective students while making it easier for alumni to get into graduate schools. But previously, the school had opposed accreditation by a secular agency, and again, um, that success is being used against Pettit by the fundamentalists. Now, though, more than 7,500 people have signed a petition in support of Pettit at change.org, and they are calling for Lewis to resign instead. Well, we don't know who Steve Pettit's successor will be at Bob Jones, but we do finally know the new president at Liberty University. His name is Dondi E. Costin, and he will um, be sworn in. Uh, he was named the new president, rather, on March 31st, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Costin is a retired Air Force Major General and the outgoing president at Charleston Southern University. He's also an alumnus of Liberty University, having earned two master's degrees there. He replaces the interim president, Jerry Prevo, who was named to that post following scandals that engulfed the school and caused the departure of former president Jerry Falwell Jr. Jonathan Falwell, son of the late Jerry Falwell Sr. and brother to Jerry Falwell Jr., has been appointed chancellor of the school founded by his father. Dondi Costin is a graduate of the Air Force Academy and spent 32 years in the military. He retired as the chief of chaplains. He then spent the next five years leading Charleston Southern, a Christian college of about 3,500 students in South Carolina. Now, despite Liberty's recent troubles, it remains one of the largest and most influential Christian colleges in the country. Liberty offers 700 programs of study, 600 of them online in 2020. 22 total enrollment exceeded 130,000 students. It's also important to note, given Dondi Costin's military background, that many military personnel are Liberty students or alumni. In fact, the school reported that more than a third of its online students were active duty or reserve military. Well, while we're at it, we've seen a number of high-profile organizations make leadership changes recently. We have, in addition to the ones that we've just reported in the past couple of weeks, we saw a new president at the Educational Media Foundation. Now, if Educational Media Foundation doesn't sound familiar to you, they own K-Love and Air One, which are two of the largest Christian radio networks in the nation. We also see a new president at World Hope International. They named John Klaus uh, to lead the global organization. Uh, Klaus was most recently the vice president for ministry advancement at the American Bible Society and Covenant College has a new president. Uh, Brad Voiles will be serving as interim president beginning in July. He'll serve as the interim until a replacement for the current 
president, Derek Halverson, can be selected uh, for that office. Covenant College is located in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and Natasha, as if that's not enough, the Gospel Coalition has named Sandy Wilson to be its interim president starting May 1. He replaces Julius Kilm, who has served as president for the last three years. And in the meantime, the Gospel Coalition will begin a national search for its new president. That is a lot of changes. Is this a new trend? Well, I think it is, actually. Uh, Ministry Watch does a quarterly survey of the CEOs of the largest ministries in the nation. And what we've learned is that more than half of them are over the age of 60. That suggests to me that what we saw this week is likely just the leading edge of the wedge, so to speak, a significant changing of the guard in Christian ministries that we'll probably see continue over the next few years. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if looking at the numbers and seeing some of these trends unfold, if 50% of the CEOs of the nation's largest Christian ministries retire or resign within the next five years. Warren, we're going to take another break here when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs or mentions of longer stories we'd like to make sure our listeners see on our website. What do you have first? Well, we've got uh, several long-form pieces on our website this week that we can't really summarize here, but I'd like to mention and uh, draw our listeners' attention to, Natasha. First up is a story about Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, It has started raising money for relief and development activities in Turkey and Syria. That's unusual, and even its spokesman, Todd Nettleton, admitted as much. He said that Uh, We're not a humanitarian and a relief organization, so earthquake relief is not a part of Voice of the Martyrs' calling. But helping the church is a part of our calling, he said. And uh, he answered that question in response to our questions about why they were suddenly getting into this new uh, work. The story is significant because a lot of ministries do get seduced into using tragedies and crises to raise money, even if relief and development are not a part of their mission. Seeing how Voice of the Martyrs is handling this situation might make for an interesting read for many of our ministry listeners, Natasha. We also have a story about the practice of nepotism in churches. 
Yeah, several of the largest and best-known Christian churches and ministries in the country have been passed down from parent to child. Billy uh, and Franklin Graham of the North Carolina-based Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. We think of John and Joel Osteen of Lakewood Church in Texas. Jonathan and Jerry Falwell and Jerry Falwell Jr. we've already mentioned in this podcast. Rudolph McKissick Sr. and Jr. of Florida based Bethel Church, Paula White, and son Brad Knight of Florida's City of Destiny Megachurch. So we wanted to take a look at this practice of nepotism. Now, I want to be quick to say it's not always bad, but there are some things to look at if you're a leader or if you're a donor to a ministry that uh, has, uh, that appears to be something of a family business. We have a great article on that topic this week by Shannon Cuthrell that impacts some of the issues, and I highly recommend it to you. Who's in Christina Darnell's Ministries Making a Difference column? Child Evangelism Fellowship is offering trauma resources for children at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. After an armed woman broke into the school and killed six people last week, three of them children, uh, the resources include Child Evangelism Fellowship's Do You Wonder Why booklet. Uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, by the way, has an A transparency grade from Ministry Watch and a donor confidence score of 86, which means you can give with confidence. And also I wanted to mention Oklahoma Baptist Disaster Relief. They provided meals to first responders over the weekend as wildfires spread in North Oklahoma City, Edmond, and Guthrie, Oklahoma. They will also be helping with the cleanup efforts there in the coming week. The Tennessee Baptist Disaster Relief is heading to areas struck by tornadoes and severe storms over the weekend to assess damage there. Warren, do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I want to mention uh, to our listeners that on April the 26th, I'll be doing a webinar that I'm calling Ask Me Anything. Now, when we've done webinars in the past, we always have a Q&A time in our webinars, and often we get questions that have nothing to do with the topic of the webinar itself. So I decided to schedule a webinar where you could, as the title suggests, ask me anything that's on your mind, either about Ministry Watch, about a particular ministry, or about how we do things here. Uh, Check your inbox in the next week for an invitation to this webinar. It's absolutely free, but you will need to look for that email because there are links to register and also some additional information as well. I also want to mention that I've uh, got a bit of travel coming up in the next few months. I'll be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania next week uh, to speak to the annual meeting of the Evangelical Press Association, and I'll be hosting a lunch for donors, readers, and listeners in the Lancaster area. So if you live in Pennsylvania, you should have already received an invitation. Uh, Again, it's absolutely free, but you do need to sign up to get the details. And of course, so I can let the restaurant know how many we'll have. And finally, I want to mention that in May, I'll be in Orlando, Florida for the annual convention of the National Religious Broadcasters. We'll be doing a reader and listener lunch there as well. Once again, especially if you live in the Orlando area, check your inbox for details. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Seddeth. 
Writers who contributed to today's program include Shin Cuthrell, Heather Hahn, Kim Roberts, Steve Raby, Bob Smetania, Christina Darnell, and you, Warren. Special thanks to UM News, Covenant College, and World Hope International for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 